If you'll open your Bibles and turn to chapter uh, 23, we will enter chapter 23 by way of the final verse in chapter 22. We've been through the first of six defenses that Paul makes for the Christian faith as he was brought by the Roman soldiers under uh, Claudius Lysias, who was the tribune back then, the commander of a thousand, the chiliarch, which means commander of a thousand soldiers, together with his centurions and all the rest of the soldiers who descended the stairs when the mob was trying to, of course, kill uh, the apostle Paul, thinking that he was bringing Gentiles into the temple which, of course, would be forbidden on penalty of death, not only penalty of the Gentiles' death, but his own. And that not being the case, Paul was in the temple, of course, with Jewish men who had taken a Nazarite vow. He did that to show how Jewish he was and how much respect he had for the Jewish faith, for Moses, and also for the temple. The last thing he would ever do is desecrate. And that's why he begins his defense in chapter 22, you'll recall, by laying out his credentials. And we found helpful um, uh, advice in how to present the gospel, finding those points of connection. I am a Jew, just like all of you. As a matter of fact, I studied under Gamaliel. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a hard-driven, very conservative-minded Pharisee. As a matter of fact, he was a, a zealous Pharisee who went after people of the way. He's trying to show them that, yes, I, I am one of you studying under Gamaliel. I'm also from Tarsus in Cilicia. So, yes, I'm a Jew of the diaspora. I'm like the Jews of Asia who started this whole mob. They're part of the dispersion as well. I'm one of you. I went after these people, these people who claimed Christ as Messiah. I brought them to trial. I had papers from the high priest to go and extradite them back to Jerusalem for punishment. So I'm also a Roman citizen. Now that's getting the attention of the Roman soldiers. And he lays out his credentials, credentials provided by the sovereign God who created him. Not only created him, but created every providential detail, everything on his resume, so that in this moment he can make the connection, so that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, for them to find any fault in the man. Well, that, if you think about it strategically in any apologetic, it makes sense that he's anticipating their thinking. Well, how did you get to where you are now? A man recognizing Christ as Messiah. Well, let me tell you, that was part two, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So he tells them, here's what happened to me on the road to Damascus. It was a very dramatic conversion. I asked, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are crucifying. Giving that, letting Jesus name his own name instead of Paul uh, sort of disconnecting with them by using the name Jesus himself. He tells it in the story, though, so they make no mistake of that this was the Messiah that has been crucified and now risen. And he, I will tell you where to go and what to do. And that the third point from last series we just finished in his apologetic was 
the contact that was made providentially. Again, that's God providentially connects. He makes the intersections happen. He works through people who are able to come to the people that he has a task for to tell them and give them direction and so on. And so that was um, uh, Aeneas, you'll recall. And Aeneas went to him and he told him uh, what all was happening to him and where he would go and, and so on. And so he goes into the wilderness and you know the rest of the story in Damascus. He doesn't include that. It's not necessary. So then he goes from there into a very interesting story in chapter 22, and it, but it makes sense. It, it makes sense strategically, logically, where he's going as he's unfolding his apologetic. Listen, he's got a one-fold interest here. He's had it all along in all three missionary journeys. I want to see the Jewish people saved and the Gentiles as well because in the commission that I received when I was in Jerusalem, after Damascus, I was in Jerusalem and I went into some type of a trance, this word that we get the English word ecstatic from, this this trance-like state where Jesus told me where, what I needed to do, where I needed to go. And he pleads with Jesus by saying it just doesn't make logical sense. You'll remember that from last time. But he's hoping that all of these things would make sense to them. He uses, he uses a, a, not only a sequential flow that would appeal to them. Know that. He makes his connection with them. He tells them who, what happened to them that changed his view about who Jesus was now as the Christ. And he makes that very clear. There's no fear of man here, however. He doesn't shrink back, but he is very careful and wise in how he chooses his language and what parts of the story that he tells. So you remember that from last time. He receives his commission because uh, God sovereignly directs. So God sovereignly connects with Aeneas. Now he sovereignly directs through this experience where Jesus tells him, you're going to have to go to the Gentiles. What happened when he used that word? Boom! That They blew up. They were good up to that point. They were good up to that point. He sent me to the Gentiles. Wait, what? We are the first people. We might understand something like to the Jew first and also to the... What are you doing running off and giving our salvation story to the Gentiles? absolutely offended they've been waiting for a trigger just like people do today waiting for that trigger waiting for one word and all the rest of his merits is out the window sound familiar so this is this is his strategy however but now it it backfires on the word gentile the mob says let's kill him away with this man which means we don't want him on the face of the earth anymore by the way and so they see this mob and they see this riot happening and they're pummeling Paul, the tribune up in the Atonia fortress in the city is made known that there's a riot and God instrumentally, sovereignly protects. God is protecting Paul in that moment through using the Roman soldiers. Amazing orchestration of providential means, all means that God has to proliferate the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. He could send an army of angels to protect Paul if he wanted to, 
But how much more impressive is it that he's working through these pagan, these polytheists, these Romans to go down and save his servant? Now, if he wanted him to be beat to death, he could have allowed that. But he didn't. And I want you to think about that as we carry that question forward in this morning's lesson, in this morning's sermon, as we read the narrative here together. So he's brought up the steps. He makes an appeal. And he's uh, kept overnight in the Antonia uh, Fortress. The tribune needs to know he needs to have some kind of a charge. He couldn't make sense out of any, there was no reasonable voice in the crowd. They're all shouting one thing and another. He still needs to know. See, the Romans were, were all about order, peace and order. And if you had any kind of a conflict, you took it to court and you handled it, you handled it uh, judicially according to the Roman uh, jurisprudence. And so this is not the way to get it done. The tribune's reputation is at stake with Caesar himself. If he doesn't keep the peace there, that's the sole reason he is there. Pax Romana, that was their premium. So I still, this is, this is Lysias, I, I still need to know what, what the charge was. Because now that I found out that he's a Roman citizen, I was about to do it through flagellum, which is to flagellate his body with a whip, with fragments of bone and, and, and metal on it to rip the flesh off his back, that's usually pretty persuasive to get the truth out of somebody. But the centurion came to him and said, do you realize what you're about to do? You're about to do, you're about to, <laughs> you're about to flagellate a Roman citizen. So he, shot, he stops that, but he keeps him overnight. Now he still needs to have some kind of charge because he brought him into the barracks and he kept him incarcerated overnight. He put him in chains and so on. I've got to have, I've got to find out what's going on. So he's going to convene the, the council. And so now Paul addresses the council. So let's read verse 30, the final verse in chapter 20 through down through chapter 23, verse 11. Let's read together. But on the next day, Desiring to know the reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this is the tribune, unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. He brought them down and set him, Paul, before them, the council. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest and Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whited wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others, other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. We'll stop there for now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story. It helps us, O Lord. It helps us, most importantly, to understand your ways. For we would that they were our ways, O Lord, that we would yield to what is clearly your your mandate, your call for our conduct, how we would comport ourselves in this world of the lost, in this sin-darkened place, having been sin-darkened once ourselves, O Lord, and now saved by the light of life. You're delivered from the darkness into the light of the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we thank you for that. Help us now to understand what you would have us gain from this particular account that you've appointed for us here providentially this morning to hear and to listen and to consider in our own lives. This, that we might bring you glory in our lives, for we pray in the name of Messiah Christ. Amen. So, verse 30 of 22 let's go through this together but on the next day desiring to know the real reason why he paul was being accused by the jews he lysias the tribune unbound him so he takes the chains off of him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet and he brought paul down and set him before them so he unbound him simply means that the chains are now off of him this is a a Roman citizen. That's all I, we can assume that is all what's on uh, Lysias's mind is I just about, I could have been killed myself for unfairly and unjustly flagellating a Roman citizen without a charge. See, that's what he needs. That's all he's thinking about. I've got to figure out what the charge is so that that can go on record. What did this guy do wrong? So he unbound him so that he could walk freely. And I would suggest that that's perhaps if he goes dragging in on chains, somebody could say, isn't he a Roman citizen? A lot of these people knew Paul as Saul previously, but they knew him and they, many of them, we can assume, knew that he was a Roman citizen. To see him come in chains by the Roman cohort, um, something's not right here. They're familiar with Roman law. So he unchains him so he can walk freely to this, the council, the council. So that's what he's called them there to do. And the council is simply the Sanhedrin. You, we've been here before. The gospel has been presented by God's servants through the book of Acts five times. Five times they've heard the gospel. Five times they've rejected the Messiah that they put to death. So this Sanhedrin, you'll remember when we first 
met the Sanhedrin in the record of Acts is a group of 70 plus one. The plus one is the high priest. The 70 are primarily made up, dominated clearly by the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we'll see what Paul does with them here in a minute. But they're primarily the leaders of this group. But there's also elders, those who are uh, wealthy uh, men of, of, of upstanding Judaism in their own life and scribes. And there was also, not part of the Sanhedrin, but they sort of worked for them, was the temple guard. There was a captain of the guard and so on. So that's kind of the crew. But this is an informal setting. They're not meeting in their usual place. He's called them to the Fort Antonio. The tribune had the Roman right by law to be able to do that. He could convene a meeting of the high council. This is the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. So he could tell them, you need to come here because we've got a situation for you to adjudicate. He understands this much, Lysias, and that is that this is a matter of religion. It's a theological issue. I'm not going to adjudicate that. So let's bring them here. Let's let them do that. Now, the reason I tell you these little details is maybe we can, to bring further understanding to why Ananias does what he does and why Paul responds the way he responds. So let's just move forward and see. So they set him before them. So this is uh, simply the, as I mentioned, the fifth and last time that the uh, Sanhedrin had the gospel presented. You remember the first time in Mark 14, Jesus addressed the Sanhedrin. The second time was Peter and John. You remember that from Acts chapter 4. The third time was the arrest of the apostles, remember? And they were told not to use that name ever again. They were, they were beat and then let go, and they went right out on the temple steps and started witnessing Christ again. You remember all of that? That was in chapter 5, and then the trial of Stephen in chapter 6. So this is the fifth time that the, the Sanhedrin is hearing about the one that they've, they've put to death, an innocent man, in fact, the God-man, in more fact, their own long-awaited Messiah. But it isn't about that anyway with them. So what I want to park on for a little bit here as for we read verse 1 of chapter 23, um, let, let's read that together. And looking intently at the council, Paul said. Now he's looking confidently at them. He's looking eye to eye. Paul, you'll find out later on, I believe chapter 26 uh, when he's retelling things, that there's some sort of an allusion to Paul could have been a member of the Sanhedrin at one time. It's not clear, but he may have been. He, he knows of these people, at least he might know them personally. But you have to remember also, so that you come to a, a, a more of a, a rich appreciation of what's going on here, that he's been away for a number of years. So he addresses them, brothers. This is very informal. This is not the formal address that you give to the highest court in the land. Clearly, the, uh, uh, the high priest. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That was enough for Ananias. I want him struck. So, 
They're called to meet here. They're at the Antonia Fortress. They're not in their usual location. So we can assume that another thing that would be a fair assumption would be that Ananias perhaps doesn't even have on his priestly robe because Paul says, I didn't, I didn't know it was him. He may actually legitimately not have known him. He's been away for a long time. It's a casual meeting. That's why he dresses him in this casual way. The way that you would address him would be a lot more on the line uh, uh, that Peter addressed the Sanhedrin, uh, rulers of the people, where he says in chapter 4, verse 8, rulers of the people and elders. I mean, there was a lot of um, sort of reverence and respect. And Paul starts with brothers. Hey, man. <laughs> Uh, look, let's just, I've had a good conscience and it's not good to him, to this Ananias. He is, uh, something else. He's, um, well, we'll get to him in a minute, but I mean, this man is a rascal to say the least. He was violent. He, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who was alive at the time, writes about Ananias as the high priest. This isn't the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira. This is uh, the high priest. So he writes about him saying that he is vicious. He is, he is, uh, uh, he's wealthy. He has a lot of money. He's, he's just, let's say, he's very uh, disliked by the people, by the Jewish people. They did not like him, and so eventually he was deposed uh, after his time, and then uh, eventually he was killed. So this is the guy that he's dealing with. But we'll look, we'll look at that as we come to it. I want to stop park for a minute on what Paul says, something very important here. And that is the importance of having a good conscience. If we're going to navigate effectively through a sin-darkened world, it's going to be important that we give attention to keeping our consciences pure. So they don't have a handle on things. They don't have anything to grab a hold of. That's Paul's point. This is the main, this is the main point. He starts with this point. I have a good conscience. I've done nothing wrong. That's the thing that struck Pontius Pilate with regard to Jesus. I find what? No fault in this man. I don't want to do what you all want me to do to him. On what charge? Especially with the Romans. They were all about proper adjudication of these things. Let's take it to court. Let's hear the evidence. Let's try this case. I find nothing. You've given me nothing. Whereby we can justify putting this man to death. So these men on the council at least heard of Paul, if not knew him personally at one point. But we're looking at the importance, before we move off of this point, the importance of maintaining a clear conscience. If you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ in this world, you will keep a clear conscience. So let's see how important that is to Paul. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, he mentions something similar there. I am not aware of anything against myself. But lest we might, you might think, if you're his hearers, that he's saying he's perfect. No, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm just, I'm not aware of any great offense that I've done overtly. There might be sins of omission or whatever. I'm still a sinner. 
but I, I keep my conscience clear. It is the Lord who judges me, he finishes that verse. And then in Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. If he doesn't have people believe him as a sincere person who in clear conscience presents the truth, he's lost his audience. You see, a lot of this we understand in our day as well. Uh, it's very, we're hard-pressed to find somebody who we believe is sincerely sharing the truth. So this was important. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. If I were guilty of anything, I would be convicted in my conscience. And I like what he says, and the men and I went over this because we started the book of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, he gives what the absolute end goal, the end game, the objective of all of their ministry, all the apostles, all of them that are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of the cultures. Here's our aim. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 5. The aim, this is telos. This is, this is the, uh, the, the, the aimed at point. This is the limit. This is the conclusion or the, the conclusion of all the, what we're doing. Here it is. What is it? This is the conclusion of our charge. This is the the conclusion of our mandate from the commander-in-chief himself. This is a military term. We are subordinate to him. He is the commander-in-chief that is our Christ. And this must be our charge, our aim. It is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So if we lose that, Who's going to believe what we say? You're all a bunch of what? Hypocrites. The last thing we want to hear. And when somebody says that to me, I would want to say, you're probably right. I'm a sinner saved by grace. My intention is not hypocrisy. My intention is to be faithful, but God is the faithful one. There is only one that's good, as Jesus himself said. So, good conscience is absolutely critical. There's another reason why, and I want you to understand this from sort of the biblical sanctification or biblical counseling, if you will, discipleship perspective. Because sin harbored in you cultivates a weakness. It's a weakness. It's like you're sick. It makes you weak and therefore vulnerable. That's no way to navigate through what we're seeing now in the world that we've been providentially placed in to minister the gospel. It makes you weak. It makes you withhold. It makes you say, who am I to take such a treasure and present it to other people when I know what my sins are? And so does he. Our secret Sins are so-called are open and laid bare before the eyes of him whom, with whom we have to do. Yeah? Our secret sins are open, the psalmist says, before the Lord. He sees these. He sees our weakness. So we withhold. Who am I to tell this family member? Who am I to tell this friend or this neighbor or this coworker? And you're weak. 
And so at that point, we're useless for the gospel's sake, aren't we? Keeping a clear conscience serves as your breastplate. Because it's called in Ephesians 6 a breastplate of what? Of righteousness. Not righteousness in and of ourselves. Our only righteousness comes from Christ. But when we practice that, the outworking of that righteous life, he calls us to, it becomes a breastplate that protects us. And the reason I belabor this is because it strikes me that you can see Paul with that breastplate on going from one false charge to the next. And folks, that needs to be you and I. No legitimate charge, no charge that has merit. We're sinners. But any sin that the Lord brings to our attention, we deal with at the cross. It's that lifestyle, the lifestyle of maintaining a good conscience that makes us strong in the one who gave us that armor. It's his. So that's Paul. That's why he starts there. This allowed Paul, and I think I put this, I wanted this in your in your notes, this allowed Paul to stand calmly and fearlessly before any and all of those who opposed him unfairly. You know, what you're saying is not true. That's not true. If they have a charge, in the leadership, in the pastoral epistles, the elders, the deacons, those who are called in leadership offices are to live lives that are above reproach. It's not that they don't, they aren't sinners, they are. As a matter of fact, they better be humbled by that fact. It's just that, no, there is no charge that, that can have merit to it, that can be uh, proven, that they've got some secret, ongoing pattern of sin that has not been exposed yet. And that was Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes this, For our boast is this, here's what we boast in, the testimony of our consciences that we behaved in the world with simplicity. This is the Greek haplotes. He uses this in other places. I brought this to your attention in the past. It also means singleness. You see, the somebody, somebody, a Christian that harbors sin, that has, has a weakened now countenance and conscience, that vulnerability, it creates a divided mind. There should be a singleness to our mind and the holiness of our life. Our following Christ doesn't mean we drop here and there or make a mistake here and there. We will, but we take those things to the cross and we reconcile them and we move on. It's a single path. The one who carries sin in his life leads a duplicitous life. It's bifurcated. That makes him weak. Because he, he's covering something up over here, yet trying to be this good Christian over here. It's a mess. And at that point, if that's you or I, we're really ineffective in giving the gospel to anyone else. We don't ever try to propose to people we're witnessing to that we're perfect because we know we're not but hopefully we're not harboring any secret ongoing patterns of sin, as 1 John makes very clear. So he says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, to finish that verse, our boast is the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with 
simplicity or singleness and godly sincerity. That means cleanness, purity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. I've done nothing wrong in your regard. In other words, nothing sinful. So we should make a commitment as Christians to follow Christ and lead holy lives, the holy lives that he calls us to through holy living and do our absolute utmost to oppose and resist sin in our lives so that we can be people who have such a cleansed conscience, especially in our thought life. Because then the, the words that need to come out to witness Christ flow freely. There's nothing, there's no obstacles. There's nothing restraining them. Some other secret issues in my life going on. No duplicity. I'm known by somebody who's not an overt hypocrite like some have proven to be and lost not only their witness, but in some cases their office in the church, some cases their family, some cases their freedom. They're locked up. The psalmist had his commitment, didn't he? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. That's Psalm 119, 105 to 106. Here's King Josiah, King Josiah of Judah. Here's the commitment he made before the people of Israel in uh, 2 Kings 23, 1 to 3. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. Pretty, pretty comprehensive, I'd say, wouldn't you? Everybody's there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book. See, just like the psalmist, right? When the psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a life light to my path. And so therefore, based on that, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. There's nothing legalistic about that. There's everything about you and I not being hypocrites. It's everything in how I follow Christ. That's the path. That's lit. It's lit by his word. I am the light of the world, he said in John 8, 12. Those who follow me no longer walk in darkness, but they walk in the light of life. You see? So following his word is what we do as believers. We make a commitment to do that. That's why this is a Bible church. That's why we have as a, one of our three purposes is the supremacy of Scripture. How would you follow him any other way? How is it that we who claim, oh, I follow Jesus, how do you do that? And still live a lifestyle that you care to live according to, whether it's according to the spirit or the flesh, both which Galatians 5.17 makes very clear, are in clear conflict with one another. You see? So Paul is clearing that up right out of the gate. Listen, brothers, you know me. I've lived my life in good conscience. This offends Ananias, but I haven't finished my passage here. So Josiah's got all the people of Jerusalem assembled together, the priests and the prophets, all the people, small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. All of them? You thought these sermons were long. 
We did what, 11 verses? Yeah. That he found in the house of the Lord, he finds the word of God and he picks it up and he reads it and it strikes him to the core of his heart. This is the people we're supposed to be because this is our God. This is the way to follow him. This is what's being reclaimed by him. This is what was lost by them in the garden. It's the only way to allow our souls to be recaptured by him I'll finish this passage one day verse 3 and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord Josiah to walk after the Lord he's making this covenant right here and now what did it the word of God always see those together like you did with the psalmist they're always together to keep his commandments how would you know his what his commandments are if you didn't read his word and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. This is, this is integral. This is, this is sincere. This is, I'm not playing at this. I'm not doing this for pretense. I don't care what people think or what they see. I want them to see Christ in me and they'll see him in me if I live out his word. Yeah. Amen. With all his heart and soul to perform the words of this covenant to perform them. Not just read them, not just come on Sunday and listen to them, to perform them. That's what Ezra did, remember, when he came back? After the 70-year captivity in Babylon, they come back. Ezra the high priest, reestablishing worship as they had all, all, they're all coming back. Ezra 7.10, he studied the word first and applied it to his life. And then he taught the people. He practiced it himself. That's the way it should go. And all the people joined in the covenant. They made a commitment. They made a commitment. Just like the psalmist. Just like all people who know the Lord and love Him would do. Sinful desire. Let's understand the etiology here. Sinful desire is first conceived in the mind, in the heart, right? We understand that from Scripture. If it's allowed to germinate, it becomes a sin, an external sin, doesn't it? But be all, all sin begins in the mind. Francis Schaeffer makes that very clear in some wonderful writing on that concept. So James 1, 14 and 15 comes to mind, doesn't it? Speaking of setting the mind on the right things. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If it's allowed to continue, that's, that's the telos of sin. That, that, that's the ultimate objective of sin. Satan would love to see you die because you look like someone he hates. And so we trifle with sin. You see how egregious that is? And yet we do it. James makes it clear. But it's conceived in the mind first. The eyes, the eyes are a gate. They're a gateway to the mind. What you see, what you listen to, things that entice in this world. You're drawn, you think. And if you set your mind on those things, that's the phreneo category of Greek words. It's like 
a mental bear trap. You set your mind on it because your lust desires it. It will eventually be conceived. You give expression to whatever the affections of your heart are, whether for good things or bad, in three-dimensionality, corporeal. That's these bodies. This is Schaefer again, too, by the way. Our bodies are bridges, he says. They're just simply to give three-dimensional expression of the affections that reside where? Because Christ wants what? Your heart. Your heart. So somebody can say they love Jesus, oh, they love they love Christ and they're following him, but yet their body is going somewhere else and doing something else. See? What they're doing is revealing what the true affections of their heart are. So one of my favorite phrases that we use, you know what I really meant to come to that Bible study? No, if you did, you'd have been there, right? I really meant to give you a call. I really, I, I really meant to pray for you, and, which is just so much virtue signaling anyway. It's kind of ugly. Unless something legitimate prevented the person from doing that. No, you're doing the things. You're giving full, full expression to whatever the affections are of your heart. Paul is making this clear. My conscience is clear. I lived for Yahweh. I lived for Christ when he introduced himself to me. This happened to me. A conversion. That's why he tells that story in his defense. So we need to understand how this works because tag, we're it. We're the ones on this earth now, not Lysias or, or Paulus or any of the rest, or Cephas. The most effective means of avoiding sin, collecting in the mind is the word of God, obviously. So Psalm 37, 30 to 31, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart so his steps do not slip. Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. And we all say that. Your law is within my heart. Look, that's the engine room. Whatever I fix my mind on, whatever I train my mind to take in on a regular basis, that forms affections that have a necessary power to them that exercise the body to give expression to that affection. That's how it works. That's our anthropology. It's a biblical anthropology. And so we can derive, we can extrapolate from that what our our sin, the etiology of our sin is. We can see where that comes from because these bodies are fallen. So there's this fallen flesh principle I have to deal with that challenges my mind. And that's why Paul was careful to write to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill what? The desires of the flesh. Ume, it's a double negative in the Greek. You can't. You'd be some kind of schizophrenic. To be walking by the Spirit and then sin? Something's not right. It's one or the other. And then as 17 says, as I alluded to earlier, it goes on to say, because the flesh is against, the Spirit is opposed to the flesh, and the flesh is opposed to the Spirit, so that you may not do what you want. So in the mind, you want to do things for Christ, and you want to walk in the Spirit. But then there's the flesh that's opposed to that, which prevents the Spirit from fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit in your life, which he goes on 
to mention right after the deeds of the flesh, 19 to 21 and 22 to 23, he has the nine fruit of the Spirit. And there's many more than nine, right? We need to understand this. We need to understand a biblical anthropology so we can, so we can stand with Paul in those moments. That's how he's able to stay composed. He's completely clear in his conscience. I stand before you with a good conscience. What are you accusing me of? Psalm 119, verse 11. You're familiar with this one. I've stored up your word in my heart. To what end? That I what? Yes. That's the whole purpose of storing up the word. Why? Because we have a witness to give. And that witness is marred when you harbor sin and your conscience is troubled. By the way, remember, a good definition of the conscience is in Romans 2 and verse 15. Those thoughts or actions either accusing us or excusing us. It's a wonderful faculty of the mind. Isaiah 51, 7, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man. See, that's Paul. Paul was immersed in the law, the laws of God. Under Gamaliel, And so on. He studied hard. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be be dismayed at their revilings. Interesting, because Paul is being accused of reviling the high priest. And hence he gets struck in the mouth. So keep vigilant. Here's our conclusion on this matter. Keep vigilant watch over your heart and be diligent in prayer, which... uh, we see Jesus saying in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is what? And the flesh is weak. You see, it's a weakness. It's a vulnerability. I open myself up to be disqualified for the gospel's sake when I carry sin and my conscience is guilty. Verse two of our text. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him strike him on the mouth. So as I said, from 47 A.D. to 59 A.D. is when he was high priest, but Paul probably didn't know him during that time frame. He was off on his uh, first and second uh, missionary journeys, perhaps. So this this response that he gave, just lest we understand, it's like, whoa, that's kind of harsh. Well, if you understood who he was, and thus, as I said, we understand who Ananias was by the writings of the histo- his- historian uh, Josephus, uh, who said that, Josephus said, he described him as being insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. This is him, and he's rich. That's just worse. Another writer described him as vicious and violent. That's Ananias. And eventually got him deposed in 59 AD and then killed in 66 AD during the Jewish revolt. That was Ananias. So we're not surprised, are we? When this strike comes, and this is not a slap, this word means struck by a stick in the mouth or a closed fist we would say in our day at least back in the streets back in the day he was sucker punched 
That's the worst kind of punch to be struck with if you've ever been struck with one. You don't see it coming. It's the worst. So there's no defense. There's no reaction to, to deflect. He just wham right in the mouth. But Paul's response needs our attention here. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whited wall. Are you sitting in to judgment or to judge me according to the law? Here you're here, you're here to, to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Now, this revile is a strong word. So the impression of those around Paul uh, are it's loadario in the Greek. It has the uh, to curse, to mock, to abuse, to vilify. It's a strong word. To remonstrate in anger, that's what this word means, loadario. You would do that to the high priest? Well, Paul, who throughout our whole time with him in Acts has demonstrated a tolerance to a lot of things, hasn't he? He's kept his composure even when they're stoning him and kicking him out of the synagogues and running him out of town and plotting to kill him. You remember that. But here he, he was very, very upset. He, we're reminded here of one thing. Paul's human. Paul's a sinner. Paul's wrong here. He made a mistake. And we can tell by his response. Verse 5, Paul said, I did not know, brothers. There's no reason to think that that's a sarcastic use of the, his expression. There's no reason to think that. You need to just take it, I believe, the, the literal way of taking it is as it stands. I didn't, he didn't know. He was ignorant of the fact that this was actually the high priest. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written. And so he cites what he knows to be the, the, the law he just violated. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So what was Paul's response when he's confronted? Well, he, shouldn't have, he still shouldn't have hit me. You know, I'm bleeding here. You know, I might have a missing tooth or two. Is that what he did? It was humble conviction and a confession of a wrong he committed. That's for us to take note of. If you've ever been struck in the mouth without warning, you know how difficult this would be to go right into when the information comes. I violated a law. He humbles himself and confesses by stating himself the law that he violated. That's what confession means. It's to agree with what God's perspective is on what you said or did. And that's exactly what he does. He's an amazing man. Amazing. So, he's been away from Jerusalem, as I said, for Several years, he probably didn't recognize him. He wasn't perhaps wearing his priestly garment. Notice that he also doesn't do something. He doesn't do, use his ignorance as an excuse for sinning. I didn't know. Kids do that, right? I didn't know. 
I probably said that a thousand times when I, I still say it <laughs> sometimes. doesn't go very far, though. I didn't know. That's an explanation. It's not what? An excuse. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I had no idea, so, you know, let's settle down here. No, I'll tell you the law I violated. I was wrong. He, he shouldn't be ignorant of that law, should he? He's, he's a disciple of Gamaliel, right? So, I don't think I'm going to get a fair trial here. He has to be concluding at this point. It's probably not going to happen with this guy. I can't believe he's actually a high priest. I'm given what I think, speculating his random thoughts are. It's probably not going to happen. So what does he do? This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee. Now listen to this. A son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The Sadducees did it. What? Right? Here we go. Off to the races. He had, listen, here's a guy who had been the victim of somebody, people who knew how to stir up trouble. Now he's like schooled in it. (laughs) Hey, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and so on. And that's why they have me here. This is what he's doing. So all hope for a fair trial is out the window. So he changes his strategy. This is brilliant. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So you'll remember when we talked early on in Acts about what the difference was between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were essentially the liberals. They just they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books. So there's nothing about resurrection in the law of Moses, the Torah. So they, it doesn't exist. There's no angels in there. It doesn't exist. And so they were constantly fighting with the Pharisees who were ultra-conservative, believed the whole of their scriptures, the law and the prophets, the historical books, the, the book of songs, all of it. And so here this big fight ensues, and they're divided. So Paul is able to do this because of his understanding, his, his extensive theological training, he was able to do this. So we take wisdom from that, from what Paul is doing here as he shifts gears. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, look at how God uses the tribune again. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. See, now Paul sees God's using this tribune who now has respect for Paul because remember, he spoke to him in perfectly polished Greek, and now he's learned that he's actually a Roman citizen. He goes, how did you get that? I had to pay for mine. Remember last week? It's like, I was freeborn. I was born a citizen. So that puts him up on, on Lysias. Lysias respects Paul now. So see how God works providentially? It's just wonderful. Afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
He's safe. He knew that, so he knew he could stir up a little trouble so he could get out of that deal because this was not going to go in his favor. He's pretty clear about that as he's wiping the blood off of his mouth. So once again, God sovereignly uses the Romans to preserve the life of a man called to fulfill his will. Remember that first point from his defense. God sovereignly creates. So if he still has work for you to do, you will continue to live to complete that work. That's the point. He's using the Romans to protect. As I said, he's got, he, is, he is Jehovah of Sabaoth. He is the Lord of hosts. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels. When one could strike down 186,000 Assyrian warriors in one night. No, this is much more impressive because he's the God, remember, that connects, right? He's sovereign. This is wonderful to observe. So drawn back into this fortress one more time, held by this Roman garrison and protected, which is wonderful. But at this point, I'm thinking, what, what must Paul be thinking? Here I go back into the... Look at what he's been through so far. I mean, he's human. We've proven that. He just lost his cool... He just violated the law. He confesses that. Now he's getting marched back in there. He's got to be thinking, is it over? Are you done with me? Will I ever get to what? Rome. That was his big driving conviction. I'm going to get to Rome. We have to remember because we know he gets there. We know the rest of the story. At the point of our deepest discouragement and bewilderment, Jesus comes alongside to reassure us. Now we look at verse 11 as we're bringing it to a close this morning. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must Testify also in Rome. Take courage. Take courage. I'm going to get you there. You will get there. Does he have any idea at this point how he's going to get there? Absolutely not. But he knows he's going to go. That's the point. It reminded me of that other. He's had, I think, five of these kinds of visitations, different places, throughout scripture. But my favorite that's reminded me of verse 11 here that's similar is remember when he was in Corinth and he was worn out? Remember that visitation? I brought it here for you this morning. That's Acts 18, 5 to 6 and then 9 to 10. When Silas and, this sets it up, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ were Jesus. So he's doing his thing. He's doing what he's called to do. And when they opposed, and here it is again, and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the, and he used that word. Go where? To whom? The, the Gentiles. You see how upset he is there in Corinth. I'm done with you. That's it. 
You're on your own. I came to bring you life, and you reject it out of hand, and you're you're rude about it. You're vicious about it. Why did walls, to use his own word, he didn't say that, but he was probably thinking it. So he's discouraged. He's got to be discouraged at this point. He had traveled all the way around the Aegean Sea by foot. He had been all the way up through Macedonia, come down through straight into Corinth. He spent a year and a half there, but he's, in, he's, he's gone from synagogue to synagogue because he does start with the Jews first until he gets booted out. And then he goes to the Gentiles, of course. And some Jews are saved, aren't they? Some are. But verse 9 and 10, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, look at how similar this is to our verse 11. Do not be afraid. Take courage. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, I have more work for you to do. Ladies and gentlemen, I would put to you that the Apostle Paul, it's safe to say, was immortal until God says, you're done. Why? Do we have trouble thinking like that? Gripped by fears. Bewildered, discouraged. Every moment of your life, every step you take and the ones he disallows are appointed by him. He wants you to believe that. See, it's an issue of of unbelief when we don't and when we act the way we do sometimes. We need to repent of that. We need to confess it and say, Lord, I believe, forgive what? My unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. Paul did. That's why he's able to stay so consumed. So here's your point. The whole of Christ's work on earth is to raise up witnesses for himself. So this isn't about Paul. As much as he's front and center being our our human uh, bearer of this of the gospel, the one who's the the main feature of the story on paper. It's about Christ and His raising up witnesses. We are His workmanship. We are His poema. Remember, He is the poetes. He is the poet, and you are His literary piece. Every single detail of your life has been written by him. When? Before time began. You were written in the book of life. It's not just, I'm going to put his name in there. I don't really know him yet. Don't really know what he's going to decide to do. It's sort of a, there's this openness theology that's just a bunch of heresy that's proposing that. How could God know an action before it happens? It hasn't happened yet. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it's out there. Watch out for it. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. I declare the end from the beginning and all things in between. That's our God. And we must see that and say amen to that because he deserves what? The praise and the glory. And you're given that information that you might rest in this crazy, sin-darkened world that we're walking through right now. He We are his workmanship and he will sustain us. And guess what? When that sustenance might be removed, 
He's done with you. And you and I go home. He takes us home. It's all by divine appointment. When we're finished, we're brought home and not a moment before. So you and I are immortal until God's done with us. How about that? Praise, praise the Lord. So Isaiah 43, 20-21 For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's the divine appointment. That's what we're here for. And we're to do that with a good, clear conscience that we might represent him well. I want to finish with a couple statements by McLaren because they're just too insightful and profound to leave out. Listen to this. Now, this is 1800s Scots writing, so at least it's not in the Gallic. Right, Gallic? Thanks, Biddy. Here's what he says. There can be no real deep possession of that great truth of the gospel which we profess to be the foundation of our personal lives unless we have felt the impulse to spread the name and to declare the sweetness of the Lord. The very same impulse that makes the loving heart carve the beloved name on the smooth rind of the tree makes it sweet to one who is in real touch and living fellowship with Jesus Christ to speak about him. Do you love him? Speak about him. Speak up. Speak up. They're dying. They need to hear about him. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. You think this is a little too intense? Listen to Jeremiah. He was intense. That's why I like him. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, because he got, talk about ill treatment, right? If I, if I say that, I won't mention him or speak in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. If our conversation can have some element of Christ exposed, why have it? We are unaware of the context of time that we're placed in. And time is fleeting. Time is passing. Speak up. Speak up. Why do we wait? When we claim to love him, a witness, here's your point, a witness cannot but speak about the one he claims to love and adore, right? That's just logical. The one who saved his soul. You can't but speak. McLaren again. If you never say a word to a human soul about your Christianity, your Christianity will tend to evaporate. It does. It dries up on the vine. And we're all but worthless at that point. Action confirms and strengthens convictions. Take action. Watch what happens. Speak your faith if you would have your faith strengthened muzzle it and you go a long way to kill it you're you are witnesses 
And you cannot blink the obligation nor shirk the duties without damaging that in yourselves to which you are to witness, end quote. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus? In Luke 24, 31 to 32, after Jesus had spent time with those two men, they're intrigued by him. He's teaching the scriptures to them. They invite him in for dinner. They have dinner together, and then he vanishes. He vanished from their sight, the text says. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That which is a major affection of the heart must be spoken of. It will. Or it's not the major affection of my heart. I will talk about the things that are most important to me. Right now, a lot of families, because we've been through so much in our country, are clustering into their own earthly families. They're sequestering themselves. They're, they're protecting themselves, or so they feel, or so they think, because the world is so cruel. And yet this is the world that we're meant to be his witness in. And if we love him, we will witness him. If we love him, we will speak up. And when we do, we'll find that our faith is actually strengthened. The love for him, the love for the lost will increase. Be increased instead of staring at a screen and allowing contempt to find a foothold in my heart toward those who seem evil. We're at war in this world. We're at war in this country. A great civil war. People need Christ. Give him a voice. Give him a voice. Father, thank you so much for these, my brothers and sisters, what a sweet time it is to spend with them in sweet fellowship and receiving your word and seeing the life of your servant, Paul, that we might benefit from his example, your use of him. Lord, we want to be used in a powerful way. Lord, do that work in us. Loosen up our mouths. That was Paul's prayer. Pray that we would be given opportunity to speak and then to speak. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for our gospel. Thank you for our salvation. In the one whose name we pray, Jesus our Lord, Christ and Savior. Amen.